This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Out in the cosmos, that can swallow entire stars. Nothing is more seductive. Yes! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Hello, Anahita. Hi, Jackie. How are you? I'm doing really well. Yeah, are you? Anahita was celebrating her birthday this weekend, this week. I did. Uh, we went to trivia and <laughs> we did not do well. <laughs> But we had the most heart. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, we had, uh, it wasn't a birthday cake. What was it? It was a cookie cake. Cookie cake. Yeah. It was delicious. It was delicious. A lot of calories. Yeah. <laughs> only because we ate the whole thing. <laughs> there were other people. I want to clarify. <laughs> Welcome back on the Big Electron, KCOU, Columbia. <laughs> 88.1. <laughs> I don't know the order. <laughs> I've never gotten it you right. You are such a great host, Anahita. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, you don't know what it's like when you're not here. <laughs> well, with us today, we have a great guest. Wait, uh, before we go, though, oh. I forgot to mention. If they have any questions, comments, suggestions, want to get in touch with us, they should call us here in studio at 573-882-8262. You can also text us. And you can also message us on Facebook uh, where we are the Big Electron. So, so with us today, we have Dr. Casey Holliday from the Department of Pathology and Anatomical Sciences, also a member of the Missouri Integrative Anatomy Group. Um, so welcome. We're excited to have you here. How are you? Thanks for having me. Um, why don't we start by asking you, how did you get into science? Um, I got into science a long time ago. I grew up in beachside Florida, just south of Cape Canaveral, where the space program launches space shuttles and Atlas rockets. And that there. is the best state. I grew right. up in Orlando. Oh, so. Well, so I grew up a two-minute walk from the beach oh. and a two-minute walk to the Indian River Lagoon. So I was on this little spit of land um, south of the Cape. So I was surrounded by alligators and mosquitoes and birds and dolphins and space shuttles. All right. So um, I think I grew up kind of always into biology. And also I always had a little bit of, I guess, engineering mechanics in me. So after I graduated high school, I went to University of Florida, where I was a Florida gator, mm. although I didn't know I was going to work on alligators <laughs> yet. Interesting coincidence. And, um, <laughs> right. So uh, I don't know, through undergrad, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of was into med school, but I didn't like people enough. Mm-hmm. And so oh, I was kind of wonderful. into. I was kind of, well, it, it's good that you recognize that. <laughs> so, that's also why I didn't go into med school. Well, it's great. Oh, really? Well, it's important. So, um, so that was kind of like into veterinary medicine, and even 
basically biology or zoology. I was in the zoology program at Florida, which had great bird classes and frog classes and all those. And I kicked around in different labs, trying to work jobs and volunteering, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I ended up doing two things. One was working in a feline immunodeficiency virus lab. Mm-hmm. where I had to, like, suck DNA out of little tubes and things, and I really hated it. <laughs> like, I stuck my finger with, like, a thium bromide, I think, which is oh, cancerous. Yes. Yeah, it's, like, you the know, worst thing you can do. Yeah, pretty much. So, and, you know, you always hide, hide the little um, tubes up to the light, and they say, like, see the DNA? And I said, no. <laughs> so, so at the same time, I was nerding out in, uh, while well, I was doing, like, biochemistry and genetics, which in the early 90s is pretty new still, um, I was also nerding out in a couple vertebrate anatomy and paleontology classes. And so I was in this one class where I was the only undergrad in it amongst graduate students. And at the end of this class, the the instructor, this curator at the Florida Museum of Natural History offered me a, a summer job as like a research experience for undergraduate NSF job in REU. And from there, I basically just worked in the fossil collections where all the vertebrate fossils are in Florida. So it was dire wolves and saber-toothed cats and giant ground sauce and mammoths and stuff like that. That's awesome. So I got to prepare fossils deal. and dig them up. <laughs> right. So, you know, I like got that job and I went to my genetics job and said, sorry, guys, I'm out of here, you know, because I couldn't see the DNA. Um, <laughs> So that's kind of where I went, and I, I studied DNA. I still can't see it. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think it exists, actually. <laughs> so, well, now we can actually find DNA in fossils, which is actually neat. So, uh-huh. turns out cool. it's still preserved sometimes. Which that really blows my mind. So maybe in the next couple of years, we might. I might go back to trying to find it again. <laughs> um, and look at the tube with right, right, a little dinosaur DNA or in something. There. Yeah. yeah. All right. My Hopefully. eyesight's worse now, so maybe it's, it's even worse. So I did that, right? So I was working in the museum, but I was still into vet vet school. So I took a fifth year after I graduated. I had a great job at the museum, and then I worked a couple extra days a week at local vet vet clinics. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I got lucky and got a job with the Field Museum of Natural History, which is in Chicago. And so I was like the guy hanging around the University of Florida campus with jobs, you know, like that fifth, sixth year undergrad. <laughs> and uh, I got this job with the Field Museum. And the job was they needed somebody from Florida who was nearby to go help run a lab at Disney World. The Field Museum had just bought this big T-Rex named Sue, which is on display now. And they, part of the deal, Disney kicked in a bunch of money to buy it. So part of the deal was that they were building this big prep lab at Animal Kingdom, which had just opened. And so they had built this $2 million preparation lab for fossils down there. And I got hired in to work in this fishbowl, just like this, except working on fossils. So I did that for two years right out of college and still worked in vet at vet clinics for the first year. I interviewed for my second time at vet school, and they told me to my face that I wasn't compassionate enough to be a veterinarian, which I said, you're right. And so I moved on. <laughs> And here I am. So after the field museum job, I went to graduate school. I learned so, so I learned working you, that job. Like I really learned like I wanted to do cat scanning and work oh, on bones yeah. and things like that. And then this kind of. So all the all. fun tools of med school of being a doctor, but not any of the social aspects. Right. Of it. Well, you know, pretty much I don't put things back together very often, nor gotcha. do I have to pay malpractice. <laughs> So, so at your job at Disney, were just kids just like pressed up against the glass watching you all the time? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, <laughs> a lot of the times the kids were all into it and the parents would like bang on the glass what? and look at us and say like, is that real? And pointing, gesticulating <laughs> down through the glass. And uh, other times people just thought we were animatronic because occasionally we kind of hold these fixed positions for long periods of time, like sandblasting or doing really fine detail work under a scope. And... 
And then you like look up and you see people like kind of <laughs> jump back a little bit, you know. So there are all sorts of like gags like that you could run. But uh, for the most part, it was really cool because besides like doing uncovering fossils for the first time with a live audience, we got to interact with Disney's interpreters who were stationed out front of this building. Mm. And so we or I really got to help teach them how to interact with the public and tell them about what we were doing and why everybody should care and how cool it was. And so in doing that, not only did I get to learn, you know, lab techniques and things like that, but I got to learn how to talk mm -hmm. to the public about nerdy things like dinosaurs, which everybody likes to talk about, but in a more scientific way. That's that awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're huge fans of science communication here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we absolutely love it when other people do it. So, um, so why don't you tell us, I mean, you've mentioned alligators and dinosaurs. So why don't you tell us what your research is focused on now? But before we oh. go into that, though, can you guide us through the pathway of working at um, in this lab in, at Disney and, you know, ending up in Missouri? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, uh, I think it's really important for many of us who go into sciences to not go straight from undergrad to graduate school because I think we kind of need a little bit of growing, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so this job really helped me focus on what I wanted to do instead of, I don't know, languishing around soon after undergrad, I guess. Um, but that, so the, the job really helped me realize the, fee the research field I was interested in and what people were doing because I had to do a little research to do my job well. Mm -hmm. And so I went to graduate school um, at Ohio University, um, I had been into, even as an undergrad, I was into like how the jaws of animals work. And so we had, I had to write term, I think we still write term papers in undergrad, maybe. Um, I don't know not, so many. Not so much in not, chemistry, I'll say yeah, that. <laughs> some of my students don't write term papers either, but I would have to write term papers. Mm -hmm. And so we had to go to the library and write, read up on things. And so I had written all about where bone is deposited in hyena jaws. Because, like, hyenas crack bone and they have to stiffen their mandibles in particular mm -hmm. ways to be able to do that without breaking their bones. And so people had x-rayed those to see how hyenas don't crush their own mandibles when they break bones. So I've been reading a lot of things like that. And uh, so I found... Oh, that is nuts. How, how do they do that? <laughs> well, right. Well, they have really tall, vaulted skulls with big jaw muscles and big teeth with pokey parts that crush the bone really well. Okay. Um, much so, very similar to what T-Rexes do, which oh. I'm sure we'll get to. So I was really into how animals work. Um, and that really led me to just a, cool, a couple of graduate programs that are really in the United States. Um, one was Stony Brook and one was Brown and one was this place called Ohio University, which is in Athens, Ohio, which is down in the southeast corner near the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, the other two places never really wrote me back, but Ohio took me. And <laughs> the people there there were not only the people that I've been writing about as an undergraduate, but just next door to those hyena people, so to speak, uh, was this guy named Larry Whitmer who had been working on the anatomy of dinosaurs. And we had kind of, we know how cats, or how, what cat anatomy looks like, even in comparative anatomy class or in vet school, we all know what cats look like. So there wasn't a lot of anatomy to be done on like, you know, saber-toothed cats. But dinosaurs, we had just started to realize that dinosaurs are actually related to birds and birds are actually dinosaurs. And that gave us a lot more power in understanding how dinosaurs were built. And so this lab at OU was really the top lab in the country for really figuring out how animals were built like dinosaurs and birds and crocodiles. And that was really the place for me. So I spent six years there um, basically cutting up a couple hundred animals 
So I did, my dissertation was on the jaw muscles of reptiles. So mm -hmm. this part of the head, if you're in the studio with us. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I worked on like jaw muscles, like temporalis, but there's like nine others in there and birds. Nerves like the trigeminal nerve, which does sensation and motor to the head and all these things. So uh, my, my dissertation was based on CAT scanning things, dissecting them and figuring out the homology and evolution of all these soft tissue structures in the skulls of birds, crocs, dinosaurs, lizards, turtles, you name it. And I learned how to teach people then too, so I had to learn people anatomy really well. So I graduated out of OU and after six years, got a couple papers really quick and I got a tenure track job right out of grad school. So you, no postdoc for me. Yeah, the zoo. No, not yet. Uh, okay, so, so I got a tenure track job at Marshall <laughs> University. Awesome. Yeah, and Marshall is just like 90 miles south of Athens. Mm -hmm. So I got a tenure track job at the med school there because I had, as a graduate student, not only had done research, but I had learned how to teach human anatomy to medical schools, mm -hmm. which is a quite fine, employable trade still. Um, so I got a job. I was there for about two years. Didn't really like it. It was kind of lonely where I was. But then a job opened up here in this group over at the pathology and anatomical sciences department that had a bunch of people that I was familiar with already. And one of which was one of kind of my research heroes. Um, so I applied and I got the job and here I am and I never left. That's awesome. So we have this great <laughs> little group called the integrative anatomy program, which is part of the pathology and anatomical sciences program at, at the med school. And our job is to not only teach medical students and health mm -hmm. sciences students, how we're put together humans, um, I know people better than any animal, but then I have a research lab that we work on basically the comparative anatomy, biomechanics, and evolution of reptiles, particularly their heads. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. That's a good it, story. It's the whole interdisciplinary <laughs> thing. Yeah. I, I really wanted to hear how as someone that studied the jaw bones of yeah. reptiles <laughs> ended up teaching at, at a medical school. Right. So I... <laughs> I learned people really well. I mean, I have weird <laughs> x-ray vision. I can see right through everything. Um, so I teach medical students how we're all built. So hopefully that'll help all of us in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, but then I do research on how lots of other animals are built and how parts of their body are adapted to doing the things that they do. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's pretty, I came from a zoology program. Then I kind of started stepping into geology and paleontology. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think, 80% of my time is spent on recently living animals, so to speak, mm -hmm. whereas only 20% is doing really making, we do a lot of work on live animals to really say smart things about the old dead ones for the most part. Mm. Um, and so we do some kind of human medical research on the side as well. But most of the time we work on alligators, crocodiles, T-Rex, birds, things like that. Mm -hmm. So why don't we dive in into more detail about what you, what you do, what the research group okay. does. Sure. I guess Anahita had one question first, though. Okay, so what is the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? You know, I was just <laughs> doing third grade career day just last week, and they they know the answer. I have uh, what I assume is the answer. Okay. Um, something about the way their jaw lines up. Uh huh. That works. So crocodiles don't line up she's as well as she's trying to line I'm up her hands to, a little bit, but I'm without doing the U.S. Chop because uh -oh. I went to Florida State, so I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got me. <laughs> um, but that—that's my guess. Right. Now, yeah. So alligators and crocodiles. Um, uh, we have three groups of living crocs today. Um, we have alligators and their friends, the caimans. We have crocodiles, and then we have these things called gharials, which are in, live in India. So those are kind of our three big living groups of crocs. 
Um, gharials have these really long, slender faces with little fish-eating teeth. They're really easy to recognize. Um, but alligators and crocs, they kind of look the same to most people, but they have a lot of differences, as you're alluding to. Um, first off, alligators have U-shaped snouts instead of V-shaped snouts. So crocs have pointier noses, so to speak. Um, also, alligators have an overbite. So you take your two hands, you put the top hand over your lower hand. So an overbite, like that, right? No, that. <laughs> Crocodiles have interdigitated teeth, meaning when they close their mouths, they have some uppers and some lowers that override one another. So kind of like how a zipper might zip up. Um, so those are some clear differences. Uh, for the most part, crocodiles can, certain crocodiles grow to be much larger than most alligators. Mm -hmm. And if you're in the water with them, alligators tend to swim away from you, whereas crocodiles tend to swim towards you. Oh, they have different dispositions. <laughs> so I'm used to alligators who swim away. Most of the time. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I have one more question real quick about alligators versus crocodiles mm -hmm. then. Um, is So obviously there's a difference with how their jaws line up. Like you okay. said, alligators have the overbite. Yeah. So that seems like a really small difference to me. But yeah. is that a huge difference in how the jaw mechanics are? No. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> well, <laughs> that makes fact, it easy. <laughs> in fact, nobody's actually looked to see if there's a an actual functional difference between how the teeth overlap one another. Okay. I mean, humans have teeth that kind of variably overlap one another, mm -hmm. and they tend to get by okay. Mm -hmm. And we still consider them to be the same species. That's true. So... Right. Okay. They're still humans. They're still humans. <laughs> or so Whether they have braces or not, we're all human. Yeah. <laughs> Don't discriminate against people who have braces. <laughs> all right. So diving into your research yeah. a little more. So, oh, wait. Hold on. I have one more silly question. Okay. <laughs> there are plenty of silly questions. What's your favorite reptile? My favorite reptile? Uh -huh. Oh, that's cool. Well, <laughs> it's usually dinosaur. That's okay. My favorite reptile. Um, oh. <laughs> I mean, if you want to tell me. I really like alligators. Oh. I'm going to go with alligators. <laughs> I usually get asked dinosaur, and then I kind of just say T-Rex because, you know, it's pretty cool. Well, it's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So to your research. Yes. What? Um, so what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I email a lot. I write a lot of emails. <laughs> Um, what I do well, is when you, when you don't, when you're not doing emails. I know. I have like nine people in the lab now, so I spend a lot of my time. Emailing people? Managing nine Corralling. people in the lab, right. So what do the, the people but, in the lab do? Yeah, so what we all do is um, uh, we try to figure out how animals work. So, um, All I, animals? Yeah, just wait. Um, I mean, we've got projects going on in, in bird jaw muscles, alligator trigeminal nerves, mammal ear muscles. Oh. Um, so we're not really bound to any clade. It's not like we're like some zebrafish lab or mouse lab. Or, mm -hmm. We're not... We don't have confines like that. Um, so I'm an anatomist, so I try to figure out how animals are built. Um, I'm what we call a biomechanist, so I try to figure out how those animals work. And I'm also an evolutionary biologist, so we figure out how all those things change over time. So using those names, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, we first off figure out really interesting problems. So one of the projects we're working on right now is... Um, uh, the, on this phenomenon called cranial kinesis. So this is a complicated one. I should start it off easier. <laughs> um, so you were doing the alligator chomp here a little bit ago, I think, yes. like a good seminal, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and you, you, your arms just raised, and they hinged about one jaw joint, mm -hmm. right? So, so mammals like us and crocodiles only have one jaw joint. So our mandible moves up and down and a little to the side, but that's about it. 
On the other hand, um, birds, lizards, non-avian dinosaurs, um, uh, so birds, oh, almost all dinosaurs actually, uh, crocodile relatives, lizards, and fish, all of this, all have multiple joints in their heads that actually bend. All right? Yes. So <laughs> ducks, for example, dabble for food, right? They take their beaks and they put it into water with duckweed on it or something, and, uh, mm -hmm. and they, they move their bills really quickly to kind of gather up all the little plant debris and stuff like that. They're able to do it very quickly and very precisely because not only do they have a jaw joint like we do, mm -hmm. but then they have another six other joints in their head that oh allow gosh. this whole filtration apparatus to move very rapidly while they're mm -hmm. doing this behavior. Um, and each one of these joints is capped with little bits of cartilage or ligament. There are particular jaw muscles that drive all these little joints inside of the head. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out how the whole system works. So it's, it's very interesting. Um, so to get at it, so the anatomy <laughs> part of this, because we want to know how birds can do it, how it all works, and where they come from. Right. And so the anatomy part of it is that we CAT scan lots of animals first. So we get them uh, through numerous ways. Um, we CAT scan them so we get a, a 3D model of everything. Um, these days we CAT scan things first so we can get bone out of it. Mm -hmm. And then we take the animals and we soak them in this stuff called Lugol's iodine, which is iodine, potassium iodide for the chemists out there. Um, so uh, the iodine crystals actually bind to glycogens and adipose tissues in the, in, the, in the animal. And you can CAT scan them again and see all their jaw muscles in 3D that you couldn't see before. Wow. So we're mapping out the anatomy of all of the soft tissues and heads of animals using this new imaging system. Mm -hmm. So then what we do is we take that CT data and we make a 3D model of the skull and the jaw muscles and the joints. And then using a whole bunch of 3D lever analysis, uh, engineering approaches like fine and element modeling, which looks at stresses and strains and objects, um, a whole lot of MATLAB scripts that do all sorts of 3D trig, basically. Um, we can tell you pretty much how strong all the jaw muscles are, mm -hmm. how they load the skull. We can turn all the muscles on and off whenever we want to test different hypotheses. And we can build these joints with different types of ligaments or cartilages or whatever to really figure out how this whole system works. And then as we expand that data set to include parrots, which one of my students is working on, parrots are cool. We can do crocodiles, we can do ducks, we can do T-Rex. And so for the first time, we're able to build these really elaborate 3D models and in visual and number space, basically, that show us how the mandibles and joints and parts of the skull are loaded during different feeding. So that thing gets at, you know, back to Jurassic Park, right? You know, T-Rex was eating a lawyer at one point, I think off of a <laughs> toilet or eating a goat, but then they ate dinosaurs at some point. Right. And T-Rex bites really hard. And, but T-Rex has these wiggly joints in its head, kind of mm -hmm. like a duck does. So if you wanted to be a hyena or an alligator, and you wanted to bite really, really hard, you don't want to have a lot of flexible joints in your head. Right, you that want, seems like it would make stress in the wrong places. Right, so you you had all this muscle force that would be going to, going to these weird flexible joints instead of going into your duck-billed dinosaur, your dinner. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of have this paradox where we have this animal that's got six-foot-long skulls, four by five feet tall, four feet wide, six feet long. It bites like 50,000 newtons, which means nothing. I mean, it bites hard. <laughs> um, but it has these flexible joints in its head. So we've been trying to figure out if it's got all these muscles and stabilizers in there mm -hmm. um, to really ask the question, did T-Rex inherit all these joints and it can't get rid of them because it's phylogenetic or evolutionary baggage, mm -hmm. right? Or are they actually adapted to helping stabilize this really hard-biting yet flexible skull? So that's kind of the big question. So we use a lot of technology and math and engineering to get at it. That's awesome. Um, to ask some question like that. So T-Rex is cool because it, 
it bites really hard. And crocodiles are cool. They bite really hard. Mm -hmm. They live next to one another. They lived alongside one another 70 million years ago. And we had alligators, actually, that had heads bigger than T-Rex. And those crocodiles, alligator crocodiles, bit harder than T-Rex at the time. And they do it differently because they've sutured up their skull. And we've actually discovered, using a mixture of anatomy and histology and biomechanics and fossil record, that crocs actually evolved a third jaw joint to help stabilize their jaws for mm-hmm. while they deliver these giant bites and death roll things apart. So integrative anatomy is cool because we CAT scan things. We do lots of engineering and math. Um, we image things and pull out all this 3D data. We get to work on all sorts of animals that present very interesting questions, like how do you bite really hard or how do you bite really fast and dexterously, mm-hmm. right? So when did this sort of, the field that you're describing right now, when did it sort of start it? Because we obviously didn't have CT scans like 50 years ago. Or no. did we? No. Like when, well, when did it like take off to where you can use all this 3D modeling and well, it's all the, all the yeah. other tools that, that you are utilizing now. Right. So, um, you know, we weren't the first ones to really try to imagine what the 3D loading environment of a T-Rex skull mm-hmm. was. Um, but, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't, we didn't have computers that could handle the computational power or we didn't have access to CAT scanners. So CAT scanning and x-ray has been around for 50, 60 years, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really until the mid to late 90s or even the 2000s that vertebrate paleontologists and kind of non-medical staff had easy access to CAT scanning. And so while I was in graduate school, my advisor was like the CAT scan guy. Mm -hmm. And so he CAT scanned all sorts of stuff while I was there. So I grew up seeing everything as a loaf of bread rather than like some lateral view of a skull. So everything I see from my experience, we're all slices. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have this really good 3D eye thanks to all this training and stuff that I did. Um, You know, going back to preparing fossils or playing Counter-Strike or whatever. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of got a good eye for this sort of thing. So these days, we're now in our heyday of, let's say, imaging of fossils and animals. Mm -hmm. Um, We're getting better and better instruments that uh, can see smaller things or things at higher resolution. So we're right now working on projects that are actually finding, identifying chondrocytes in the tissues of T-Rex, because we can now cut up little bits of T-Rex and identify little cells in them, both using some imaging as well as using histology. Um, so, of course, like T-Rex had cartilage in it, it's no big deal. But now we can kind of ask more interesting questions like, well, did they inherit this cartilage or did birds inherit cartilage from T-Rex-like ancestors and so on? So we can kind of do things comparatively now, uh, given the instrumentation we have. Um, we just bought a new scanner here on campus. It just arrived this past week. It's called oh, a, awesome. It's called an X-Radia X-ray microscope. And it's a super ultra <laughs> micro CT thing that um, it scans things about the size of a can of soup, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it can scan things between 5 microns and 0.9 microns slice thickness. So that's sub-histological oh. level, right? <laughs> that's nice. It's wild, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's good for, like, rocks and sediments and bird heads, you name it. I mean, plants. Mm-hmm. So we just bought – campus just bought this for us. It was really nice of them. Um, it's housed that's over awesome. geology. And we should be unveiling it in about a month or so. It's cool. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned that there are three types of – Crocodiles, right? Sure. Or three yeah. forms of that mm-hmm. family. Yeah. Does, do you focus on like one, sp- so you have this question that you want to ask. Yeah. Do you focus on one specific alligator um, or is it just the whole family provides information? Uh, there are about 23 living species of crocodilians on the planet now. Okay. Um, we tend to focus on alligator Mississippiensis, the American alligator, mm-hmm. largely because it lives here. 
Um, <laughs> if we were actually in the EU right now, if we were in the UK, um, we would be studying Nile crocodiles. Because um, those are the two. And if we were in Argentina, we'd be studying Cayman. Um, so we tend to work on the crocodilians that are living nearby because they're easy to get. Mm-hmm. Um, those, uh, Nile crocs and American alligators and a couple different species of caimans are doing really well. There's plenty of them. Um, we, of course, use alligators for skin industry and meat industry and stuff like that. They're farmed. Right. And so are Nile crocs in Africa and France. Um, so those are like our model organisms, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, we do occasionally get a, a few individuals of some of the other groups. Um, it's very hard to get some because they're extremely endangered. So mm-hmm. the, the gharial. Uh, gharials are probably be extinct in our lifetime, just like rhinos. Aww. There's only about a thousand of them left. They live in the what's good, the Chambal River, which is in northern India, just south of the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. And so there's this great population. I mean, it's great, but it's really small and it's going away. Um, they live on these massive sand dunes that the river throws up, and they nest there. And they're really cool because they they form these things called crochets, meaning that when all the little baby gharials hatch. Mm-hmm. Not just the mom takes care of them, but in fact, unrelated moms and dads all help guard Aww. them. And so, so it really does take a village. It <laughs> takes a village. And um, so uh, what's really cool is that all the little baby gharials will swarm on top of the big gharials. And they look like giant wolf spiders in a way, like little oh spider legs all over the <laughs> tops of these, these crocs, these gharials. Um, so we don't really get those. I've gotten to work mm-hmm. on a couple little babies. Um but uh, St. Augustine Zoological Farm and, well, let's say alligator and zoological farm down in St. Augustine um, just hatched, I think, the first gharials ever known to hatch in the North America, I think. Oh, exciting. So, you know, there are big conservation efforts trying to yeah. keep various species alive, mm-hmm. just like the gharial. Um, so those of us who are into crocs and gators are paying attention to this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so we tend to work on alligator the most. We... Uh, this semester, one of my jobs of being a curator, among other things, is that we're launching this site called CrocNet, which is just basic. We've been cat scanning gators for a long time. So we have like, I don't know, some three dozen cat scans of alligators ranging uh-huh. from little babies all the way to big dudes. And so we're going to be pushing, putting all the CT data up online for free for everybody. That's awesome. Um, it's part of you know, our charge for National Science Foundation and things like that. Um, so I think, I think we have most, the most cat scans of alligator heads in the world here on campus. That's and I awesome. and I have to get them shared online somewhere in the cloud before something horrible happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Right. Um so I, I have a another question um switching over to dinosaurs. So you mentioned mm-hmm. that you use these techniques um but when I think of fossils, I only think of bone. How do you get the soft tissue information? Yeah, it's a great question. Um uh, yeah, so if you dig up a fossil, for the most part, you just have um, the petrified bony remains. We're starting to learn that there are uh, some preserved soft tissue bits in there. Mm-hmm. But um, just and like feathers. And, feathers and feathers and melanosomes, the little pigment structures on feathers. So we oh, can actually awesome. see and, and interpret fossilized melanosomes now. Um, that's so cool. <laughs> and using, oh, so that's new tech, right? We have these new laser scanners, these new elemental lasers that can kind of put these laser probes across fossils and tell you what kind of proteins are still there. Mm-hmm. And if you know what, pro, like an NMR signal, basically. And if you can kind of NMR a fossil, it'll tell you like how the feather's built and what kind of keratins are building it and things like that, right? That's insane. So, <laughs> so, so you know, cool. again. Well, blew our minds right here. <laughs> well, that's, so once we started realizing that not all things are lost to the fossilization, 
and we started looking and we have new technology like, you know, synchrotron scanning and, mm -hmm. and elemental lasers and pretty fancy SEMs and stuff like that. There's actually a lot SEMs more are scanning electron microscopes. Um, there's actually a lot more information in the fossil record than we really thought there might have been. Um, because we can look at them a little bit more closely and without much disruption. Yeah, and we know what we're looking for. So again, I think when those first fossils were ever ultimately discovered, let's say around Civil War time, so to speak, like mid-1800s, was when people act, people have been finding fossils for centuries, but it wasn't until 1800s that people realized that that was evidence of some former animal or remains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we think like, you know, the mythologies of dragons might arise from, you know, fossils of dinosaurs being discovered in Mongolia and China. Um, but now with these amazing technologies and our, basically our scientific understanding of what a fossil is, mm -hmm. it allows us to ask more questions like, wow, well, if feathers have, feathers show color and that color you know, we see color because these little cell things or whatever they are called melanosomes that are on feathers. Um, then, and if we can see that there are different types of melanosomes that confer different types of color to our eyes, then perhaps there's a way to identify these different melanosomes in the fossil record. So then you ask the question, well, how do you identify different melanosomes in the fossil record? Right. And that's how it leads you down that really interesting line of inquiry to figure out, well, so, you know, so cool. crow melanosomes are black look like this and, you know, mm -hmm. paradise tropic birds or whatever have black and white or blue and those melanosomes look like this. Then if you go find a big bunch of melanosomes on a fossil bird, you can then start kind of looking at those to figure out what the fossil bird looked like, mm -hmm. right? So um, a lot of it has to do with now our, let's say, intellectual wisdom. Mm -hmm. Right, because we now know that there's a lot more out there than we can get from the fossil record, and new technology. Um, so, uh, where were we? Um, where were we? So we were talking about the soft tissue. Yeah, that, how do you do it? So yeah. <laughs> again, our our muscles in our like our eyeballs and our cheeks and our and our jaw muscles, they all leave scars on our our skeletons. Mm -hmm. um, so just like you read Braille in a book, um, you can see how our bones are sculpted by soft tissues. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some might say like me that our skeleton is merely like an epiphenomenon of our soft tissues, like our brain, like our big brains make our skulls big. Right. Right. Simple things like that. But then of course, like muscles have tendons in them and those tendons leave little scars, like little ridges on your bone. Gotcha. Nerves and blood vessels leave grooves and foramina mm -hmm. or holes and things like that on your bone. And so like the bigger a muscle, the that would change how that scarring is. Yeah. So you can get more information about right. the size of things or the right. strength. And we know we're all related to one another, one way or the other, more distantly or the other. So yeah. if you know your bird jaw muscle anatomy, like if you know ostriches and parrots and crows and woodpeckers and all those things that I now know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the animals are just and, collecting. And you, and you know all your crocodiles <laughs> and you know your lizard anatomy and your turtle anatomy. That gives you a really great phylogenetic framework mm -hmm. to go back to fossils along any of those groups and basically read the braille and figure out where the eye muscles were or where particular jaw muscles were or where the cartilage cap that formed part of the hip joint was or where a ligament was that held the hip joint together. So if you know your, your live animal anatomy really well mm -hmm. and you walk it back through time through a really good fossil record, which we have, mm -hmm. you can have a really good idea of where and how big particular muscles and nerves are. And so if you can rebuild those soft tissues, then you can start asking really fun questions like, how do these things actually work for the animal? What did it mean? 
you know, in terms of adaptive radiations or the success of a group, you know, like where do bird beaks come from? Bird beaks are obviously one of the key features of what makes a bird a bird. Mm -hmm. And bird beaks are incredibly versatile and diverse in shape. And they move them around with different types of skull bits and jaw muscles. Right? So that's kind of how we do it. So we do, again, like 80% of our time is spent on living animals, figuring out all the anatomy and how they work. So then we can go back and, and interpret Mm-hmm. the fossil record with a really nice, accurate lens, you know, with all the science behind it. That makes sense. Yeah. Good. That's pretty cool. So you have a, a couple of really cool programs, uh, outreach programs here in the Columbia area and online also? All over the place, yeah. All over mm-hmm. the place. Yes. Can you share a little bit of those? Sure. Um, uh, well, going back to the first question, I kind of, I remember writing college college essays in which I would explain in the essays that I was an entertainer. Um, It was goof off in high school probably, but now I basically take our lab to the public. And part of our charge, part of my charge, um, I'm an Eagle Scout. I feel like I should serve my community one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of how I do it is through sharing my science with the community. I work on dinosaurs, which the community tends to like. So therefore, I almost feel obligated for very many reasons to actually kind of bring our lab to the public. And we do this with a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. First off, we CAT scan so many things that we also build 3D models out of all these animals. And we can now host 3D models and 3D educational modules, so to speak, online. Mm-hmm. So we have this site called the 3D Alligator, which is now hosted on Sketchfab. That's a bad dead link because Mizzou cut off our Missouri.edu uh, <laughs> addresses a couple years ago. Um, but now we are up on Sketchfab. In which you can have all, we have all these like gator bones up there and they have little labels all over them. And if you're really into understanding gator osteology, we have a nice little app out there for you. Um, We're also starting to host more 3D data, including our CAT scan data and some new things on the horizon. So we try to uh, share our 3D data with the public that way. Um, And I get emails from lots of people from around the world, actually, who make use of some of our... uh, our sites who mm-hmm. they include like uh, conservation folks who are trying to build some diorama on alligators outside the Okefenokee. Um, I've gotten emails from veterinarians who are trying to make use of some of our imaging data mm-hmm. to study some particular cases that they're working on. Uh, so we know this stuff works. Um, so that's kind of like the digital, the way we handle it digitally. Yeah. Um, I think you brought up the least interesting bone over there. That's, cor- <laughs> that's the coronoid bone. But as you can see, it's just this little kind of Y-shaped thing. There are a couple little... Num- I don't know anything about alligators. <laughs> <laughs> I just clicked on that's stuff. Okay. It's all right. Um, that's great. We had another hit right now. Um, so uh, uh, we do that. So we have this kind of internet presence, so to speak. That's the post-orbital bone. So you can click on the little numbers, right? Yes. Maybe. Uh-huh. And it should tell you something about that little thing you clicked. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm clicking on the, the prefrontal, prefrontal pillar. pillar. Yeah. Oh, so, and you can rotate them? And you can rotate them in 3D. Oh, and, this is great. And we're going to be launching some new sites that have histology pictures associated with some of the joints that we know and love so much. And so you can dig around in a 3D duck skull soon, and you can cool. click on some of the joints, and we're going to pull up little, well, they're going to be Imgur sites that... uh um, bring up some of our histology data oh, so you can cool. then see how the joints are built, right? So you can, you know, all that stuff. Um, so we have this internet presence like that. And mm-hmm. so our students in the lab all learn how to not only make 3D models, but also share them like this. So we use 3D PDFs, Sketchfab. Um, we have some students who can do 3D uh, 
animations and Maya, the same stuff they make animated movies with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of do some of that. That's the pre-maxilla. Uh-huh. That's what <laughs> I'm looking at. <laughs> so, uh... Has so much stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so right. then we also do things here. Uh-huh. And... Uh, here in Colombia. Here in Colombia. So coming up, actually, in three weeks is the uh, Dinosaurs and Cavemen Science Expo. Um, the Science Expo is our fifth year in which we, once a year, 40 of us from the Integrative Anatomy Group and friends mm-hmm. descend upon Rockbridge High School and present about, I don't know, about two dozen activities and demonstrations there that tend to hinge around um, Dinosaur paleontology, you know, hence dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, human anthropology, so cavemen, so hominids and Neanderthals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We also have a lot of human anatomy there. Um, and it's all there for the public. And so the past couple of years we've drawn so about... So it's a, not only for the students? No, it's actually go. for public. It's for kids like really kind of four and up. Four okay. to a hundred, basically, <laughs> you know. Um, so we have activities like making your own trackways in which we strap on these little three-toed theropod sponge feet onto kids and they run down a paper trail and they leave little footprints there. And uh, we have dig boxes and map your own skeletons and things like that. But um, because we're funded to do dinosaur evolution and bird evolution, Mm -hmm. we have a big kind of dinosaur track, so to speak, in which uh, we have a number of tables set up. I have a lot of skulls and parts of fossils out there. And I have students like postdocs and grad students and undergrads who all kind of interpret these tables and we show them, we take them all through kind of dinosaur and early bird anatomy. Mm-hmm. And then the next table, we actually have folks from uh, wildlife and conservation here. And they have a whole table of Missouri dinosaurs, as we call them, because oh. they're all birds. Because yeah. we now know that birds are dinosaurs and dinosaurs are not extinct. So it takes them through the paleontology side of dinosaurs. And then they learn living dinosaurs. So fish and wildlife have a bunch of stuffed birds like bald eagles and owls and ducks and things like that. And then after them, we have our live dinosaurs table, which is raptor rehab. So raptor rehab shows up with live dinosaurs with owls and kestrels and hawks or whatever. And so we have all these signs. So we're tricking the public to learn about (laughs) extinction and what's not extinct (laughs) and what really is. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we advertise like, well, we have live dinosaurs. And so we, we get some people who Take it very literally and let's call it old school. <laughs> um, and so we get people that actually come up to us very upset that we didn't have a live T-Rex there. Like oh. they're actually mad. And we call, accuse us of false advertising, but we're not. No. And I said, well, and I said, as is one person, well, do you really want a live T-Rex here? <laughs> I mean, is that something you really want? Because I don't know how we'd really contain it. Right. right? So this whole exhibit, um, it keeps growing. So this year, so again, it's, it's, uh, it's reciprocal in that we teach the public what we're doing here on the zoo campus. Um, but then we all learn how to interact with the public better. Right. And so, again, I do it okay, but my postdoc might not, and my mm-hmm. undergrads don't, and my grad students sure don't. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it takes practice to learn how to do this sort of thing. Uh, Especially and, with something that is that people can relate to right. very easily. So dinosaurs are easy. So and we there's, sh- yeah. But there's also a preconception, like, and you're, you want to educate them. So it's also dealing with the... You know, the public comes in with, I expect to see a T-Rex and you have to work through, well, this is what a dinosaur is. This is how we know birds are dinosaurs. Right. And the whole dinosaurs and cavemen title is really just trying to get that back from the Flintstones, right? I mean, we had like 10,000 years before (laughs) BC or whatever, you know, and and we kind of want that back, I think, because I get made fun of like, oh, you got, you know. 
I don't know, I forget her name, Raquel Welch and like the uh-huh. tunic and fighting the dinosaurs <laughs> and stuff in those movies. And that's what people think. And we got to get past that thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And so again. And you don't look like a caveman either. So. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure we know exactly what they look like, but I'm, don't fit your oh, hypothesis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not Fred Flintstone. Definitely. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, right. But we have to try to evolve past that thinking. Mm-hmm. No thanks mm-hmm. to Hanna-Barbera. Um, so that's what this event's like. And so this year, um, since I'll just plug it while we're at it, this year we're doing a couple different things. We, uh, the past two years we and start... When, it, when is it going to be exactly? March 4th, Saturday, March 4th. At Rockbridge High At Rockbridge High School. And so kicking off the day is our keynote speaker, Jack Horner. Ooh. Jack Horner is pretty much the grandfather of what we call the dinosaur renaissance. Uh, Jack uh, um, got famous during the 70s and 80s for his work in Montana where he described lots of famous dinosaurs like T-Rexes and Myasaura, the good mother lizard, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But he ended up becoming the scientific consultant for all the Jurassic Park movies and franchise. And so Which he's made awesome. his mark on <laughs> yeah. all of us through yeah. those movies. And so Jack's coming that weekend. He's part of – he's been – He's being funded by a bunch of different groups, including the Chancellor's Distinguished Visitors Program um, and the Nelson Fund and Saturday Morning Science. Um, And so he's giving a science talk on Friday afternoon over here at the Student Center um, to be announced. And then he's giving a public talk, like a talk more geared to the public. Uh, Saturday morning at 1030 as part of Saturday morning science, which will, they're they're moving down to the high school instead of having it over Monsanto. So they're being very awesome. Yeah. So we're having him come. And then this year also we have uh, some tables from the St. Louis science center coming. They have a vert paleo lab. So they're bringing some stuff. I think mostly duck build material, duck build dinosaur material. Mm -hmm. And we actually do have a dinosaur site down in the boot heel of Missouri known as the Chronister dinosaur site. Mm -hmm. Um, The Chronister site is a, about I think it's about 70 million years old, so late Cretaceous. It's a sinkhole deposit that's on private land. Um, so the sinkhole deposit, there's dinosaurs in it, so they have duckbill, they have some uh, dromaeosaur teeth, like velociraptor things. Okay. The thing that, that Dr. Grant sliced yeah. the kid's belly open with at the <laughs> beginning of Jurassic Park. <laughs> so, uh, um, and uh, everybody knows that What are you looking at me? Everybody knows I'm that not <laughs> So uh, they have stuff like that, and we've been trying to work with these guys for a while now to try to reopen the site. It got damaged with an ice storm a few years ago, and it's covered with, like, water and water moccasins and things. So So terrifying. Yeah, but those folks are also bringing a display of some of our own Missouri dinosaurs, not hawks and kestrels now, but Mm -hmm. actually extinct dinosaurs also. So we'll have all this, like, new our new friends who will be here this year as well. That's so, awesome. So that's our big annual outreach event. And when locations and everything are um, confirmed, we'll post that on our Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a Facebook event page, actually. You can oh, okay. probably go to it right now and so we find can, it. We can, can share it. it. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Wonderful. So, um, but that's our big outreach thing. But our we all kind of do things all year round. Um, our graduate students actually go out to different schools when asked to do programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I go do programs. You know, it's if you get to work on cool things like dinosaurs, you're obligated to go share science with the public and it should be really easy to do it well mm-hmm. right like i'm glad i'm not like a plants genomics person <laughs> right it just sits there in front of clustering algorithms all day right because it's hard to sell that yeah you know i mean well we actually had one person that does that like uh-huh. last weekend sure yeah. I, I get it but and, it, no she did great but yeah but it's it takes not easy time. but you can't have like two dozen tables and right, right. right. Be like I mean, this is 
X. Right. So. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Holiday, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we wrap up, uh, we have one last question that we'd like to ask um, all of our guests. So, if if you are a, a listener, uh, someone who is out there uh, that is curious about science, regardless of age, what what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I would say that if you find yourself being interested in some aspect of science, astronomy zoology, marine, mammals, anything. Go get involved and see how much of it you actually like. So go to workshops put on by your local extension office or various clubs around town. Or if there's a museum nearby, go volunteer. Mm -hmm. You know, art museum, archaeology museum, fossil museum. Everybody always needs volunteers. And that's where you can really get hooked into turning something into an interest in science and turn it into like a hobby. Right. And then you're really that's when you really start giving to science yourself is when you really start participating. And that's when I think it's the most rewarding to give you a really cool example. A paper just came out, um, I think it's in Nature Science, mm -hmm. in which uh, a colleague of mine, Jen Bright, helped lead a group in which uh, did landmarks of bird beaks. They basically laser scanned all these bird beaks out of collections and they uh, they crowdsourced. The, the data collection. And so she set up this oh, whole web page. She set up this whole web page where people from around the world could log in and it bring up this 3D rendering of a bird beak. Mm -hmm. And they would then place these little morphometric landmarks all over the beak following the guidelines, hit submit, and they would basically add to the collections of this data set. Yeah. And so they just had this massive paper come out. I don't remember the demographics, but they had like tens of tens, let's just say thousands of people uh -huh. who actually donated their time to gathering data for this big oh, shape that. analysis. Yeah. And so that was really cool. So I forget the name of it off the top of my head, the Great Bird Beak Project or something mm. like that. But that's that's awesome. cool. I right. So again, if you're interested in science, get involved, right? Mm -hmm. Go volunteer, get hooked up with scouts or I, I, any of those things. Uh, just call up labs. I mean, honestly, uh, folks that work on fossils in particular, we like elderly volunteers, the retired dentists mm -hmm. oh, are like yeah. the prize <laughs> preparators. Those people know how to clean rocks off of teeth, right? Because they oh, that clean totally plaque makes off sense. of teeth. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> they have the 3D eye necessary mm -hmm. to, uh -huh. to sculpt things and fix things up and stuff like that, for example. Oh, that's wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. KCOU 88.1 FM, Columbia. And KCOU FM. All right, and with that, we'll conclude our show. Thank you so much, Casey, for being here. Mm -hmm. um, again, remind, remind us of your title and uh, what department you're housed in. Yeah, Casey Holiday, Associate Professor of Anatomy in the Department of Pathology and Anatomical Sciences, University awesome. of Missouri. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, thank you, and thank you, listener, uh, for listening to us on this Sunday evening. Um, if you're listening on the podcast, thank you so much, and don't forget to rate us. Until then, have a good week.